Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Shubhi Bani, and today in Raise Line, I'm really happy to be joined by Luke Bonney, who's the co-founder and CEO of Redox, a cloud-based platform which makes it easy for digital health companies to integrate with electronic health records at hospitals and clinics. Redox has integrations with more than 500 independent software vendors and is connected with providers serving over a third of all of America's patients. Earlier in his career, Luke worked at Epic, the leading EHR vendor in the United States. And I wanted to do a quick shout out to the partners at Flybridge, including Chip Hazard and Jeff Buskang, who are both investors in Redox and in Osmosis. So Luke, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Super excited to chat. You know, obviously, I know a lot about your background, but for our audience's benefit, do you mind telling us a bit about yourself, what led you to your interest in healthcare data and digital health in general? Yeah, of course. So like a lot of people, I I graduated high school knowing that I wanted to work in healthcare IT. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) So like, I don't uh, know many people, your friends. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I, I went to school and was a biology major expecting to be a doctor and graduated in 2008 and kind of all at the same time recognized that I wasn't ready to, to commit myself to medical school, but very interested in healthcare and very interested in software. So graduating in 2008, similar to what's happened in 2020, there was significant impact to the jobs market. And what ended up working for me was, was getting started out at Epic, which back then that was kind of before the Affordable Care Act. I remember my parents saying, I'm from New York, and my parents saying, what's this EHR thing? And where is Madison, Wisconsin? <laughs> and my response was, you just got to, you got to trust me. <laughs> it's going to work out. The journey to Redox really started, you know, first with with Epic. Me and, and Nico and James, the two other co-founders, that's where we met and really cut our teeth. Under started to really understand technology and healthcare and the role they play. Redox really got started when we both, when all three of us left. And Nico and James actually left first, each to start their own startup in Madison. I got involved about a year later. And really the first idea that we came together around kind of the first project was a project we called 100 Health. And 100 Health, the tagline was, we are going to start 100 digital health companies in Madison in the next five years. And this is in 2013. And of course, that was crazy. (laughs) And that was kind of the point. But the whole idea was, we thought digital health and healthcare IT was about to explode because of the impact of meaningful use. And we thought Madison was a super unique situation because of the unique mix of talent. And while we didn't start 100 digital health companies with 100 Health, we did get seven started. And Redox was born as we kind of witnessed firsthand how difficult it was to scale each of those seven cloud-based technologies. And the unique problem that all seven of them were running into that really impacted their ability to scale was how to integrate data with provider organizations. So that's where the kind of inspiration for Redox was born. And we quickly came to understand that what the world needed was a a platform that served providers on one side and served developers on the other side and made it easy to facilitate data exchange at scale. That's a really cool backstory. And clearly you've gone from you know those seven to now over 500 software vendors. Can you tell us a bit about what the secret of your success and scale has been? I'm sure just like any platform play, there's probably a couple of killer apps or killer integrations that have really led to your adoption. Well, I would say the first secret is <laughs> the willingness to bang our head against 
a really hard wall for a long period of time, <laughs> which I think is any any successful company. That's at least a, a key part of the story. For us, the first real big question to answer was, which of the two sides of the network do we start with? When you know we we immediately understood that Redox was going to be a platform that sat between providers and cloud-based vendors, the question was, how do you build the network? It's the classic chicken and egg. So the way we went about that, this is so think about this. This is late 2013, early 2014. We basically pitched the idea to a whole bunch of CIOs who we had met and known through our time at, at Epic and pitched a whole bunch of CTOs at digital health startups. And you could imagine the kind of difference in response. <laughs> the CIOs were like, you're built in the cloud and you're talking about a platform. Both of these things make me really nervous. And on the other side, we had CTOs at digital health startups saying, wait, you're telling me you want to build a single platform where we could connect once and integrate anywhere. I'll buy that right now. So what that, that was kind of like the, the first experiment we ran. It was also the experiment we ran to help us build conviction that Redox was worth pursuing. But that's what really got us started. So our core focus right now is how does Redox provide a wonderful developer experience to cloud-based applications? They are our core customers and core users. And they bring us into the providers who want to use their technology and stand up reusable integration for them that can be used by any other application. But that really helped us understand that the way we were going to build our network is by servicing and engaging directly with the technology vendors first. That makes a lot of sense. And definitely forming developer communities is the heart of success of other large companies like Twilio and Stripe. Redox kept coming up as I was doing research into, into the space. What are some of the example integrations that you're most proud of? Like, Can you give us a bit of a, a sense of that? And you, you transmit millions of patient records a day. We'd love to hear like where the value is being created. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And to put some numbers, we, we've done a couple billion transactions in 2020. And <laughs> I only say that because I've never been associated with anything with a B in front of it. <laughs> it's just really kind of crazy to think about. But, you know, obviously 2020, so much happened to healthcare, so much happened to all of us. I think some of the things that we are most proud of as a company are some of the things that we were able to support in response to COVID. One of our customers is this amazing company, Curative. And Curative is today a COVID-19 testing company. And they do everything from drive-through testing facilities, working with municipalities and states, all the way through to servicing entire states. And when they started, at this time, 2020, they were something like 10 employees. And their CIO came and talked to us the summer and they were at 900 employees. And we've helped them process over 10 million COVID results. And our role in all of that has been to provide the infrastructure back and to help them report and exchange those COVID-19 results with state level public health agencies across the country. So today we're now connected and can report COVID results to all 50 states and working on the ability to report and, and track vaccinations. All of that is infrastructure that we built in order to support so much of the critical work that went on this year. This time last year, and if you said, hey, Luke, you're going to be exchanging millions of messages with state-level public health agencies, I would have said, you're crazy. Why would we ever do that? <laughs> and here we are now having built out mission-critical infrastructure 
And the way we look at that is that's that's our role. That's what we had to do. It's the least we could do in support of our country and our response to COVID-19. That's a pretty amazing example. And it actually is a good transition into my next question, which is what are some of the lasting changes you think COVID will have, not only on, on Redox, like maybe that infrastructure you built can be recycled yeah. for other public health testing, not just pandemics, but maybe other kind of reporting, but then also for healthcare in general, what are some of the lasting changes you think will come out of out of COVID? Yeah, I mean, as incredibly painful and as terrible as COVID-19 has been and all the people, both patients and providers and kind of everybody who's been hurt by it, you know, just like everybody, we're trying to look at what are some of the positive things that have come out of this. And I'd say the top line kind of general takeaway is that COVID has drastically accelerated the role of technology in healthcare. And it was because all of us, providers, patients, payers, anybody who touches the healthcare space understood we didn't have a choice in you know March, April, May, June. We had to embrace technology. So the biggest thing I've seen is we've probably taken five years worth of technology adoption. We jammed it all into 2020. Some of the specific things that I think have shifted and are here to stay. The first is just virtual care. You know, what we were forced to figure out is how do we care for patients that we don't see in person, whether that be telephonic visits, video visits, whether that be remote patient monitoring, how do we care for a patient at home and and keep track of them? What we found is that patients, something like 84% of patients who engage in virtual care one survey said, I would prefer that. <laughs> Not only is that equivalent, but it is better. <laughs> it is so much more convenient than in line with how I run the rest of my life. Why would I do anything else? So I think virtual care and the way we engage patients and you know the way providers engage patients, that's here to stay. I think the other big shift, two other shifts I'll talk about, the other is a significant acceleration in what I would call the direct-to-consumer healthcare market. So when I say direct to consumer, I mean engaging not through a provider, but directly with a patient from a business model standpoint. The two examples here are the necessary explosion in home diagnostics. So how can we test? How can we get a test and take a test and send it back in all at home from a mail-in standpoint? And then the second is all the direct to consumer prescription work, You know whether that be GoodRx, Roman, those sorts of groups. That's the beginning and what and has accelerated what will be this direct-to-consumer business model and approach. And I think over time, that has the greatest opportunity to disrupt healthcare. And then the last big thing I would just say is the regulatory landscape has forever changed. And I think most of it's for the good. We've seen reimbursement for virtual care visits get introduced universally. We've seen the ability for physicians to practice across state lines put in place. And overall, we're just seeing the reduction in barriers when it comes to technology adoption and and access to care. I think healthcare will be a better place for technology innovation in 2021 because of the regulatory changes that were accelerated in 2020. That's great to hear. Two other things that, you know, independent of COVID that I know our audience would be very interested in, given that you worked at Epic and obviously you integrate with a lot of health records. One is Privacy, right? Patient privacy. I was actually, when I was at Hopkins, Hopkins Med and I co-founded Osmosis there, Robert Lord and Nick Culbertson also were Hopkins Med students and they co-founded ProTennis, which does cybersecurity. I'm sure you know them too. Of course. I know those guys well. 
What are your thoughts and how did you respond to the CIOs at these different health systems to mitigate their fears, given that you know there's a lot of questions around security, around patient privacy and, and data? I have a couple answers to this question. The first is one should always recognize that regardless of what technology you bring, when we talk about healthcare, we're talking about some of the most sensitive data that you could imagine, right? So by the very nature of it, describing very sensitive parts of your experience and my experience and who we are and the fact that it's <laughs> non-reversible and unchanging, the stakes are just higher. And I just want to start there. <laughs> like you, if you're, if you're going to do work in healthcare, you just have to understand that security is paramount no matter what. So for us, what that means is both we need to invest in that appropriately when we think about our own infrastructure and then make that transparent to the people we work with. And we need outside parties to stamp that, you know, to verify that what we do is secure. So, so for us, as we are directly engaging with CIOs, what that meant is, you know, being able to talk through what we do in terms of the, the controls we have in place and being able to share things like, like our high trust certification or our SOC 2 type 2 letter. So that's really critical. My second response goes back to kind of the question you asked earlier. At the end of the day, the data belongs to the patient. And what really gets lost, and it's not because, you know, everybody's trying to do the right thing. So this is not a blame at all. But at the end of the day, everybody should be asking, what does the patient want? Where should that data go in order for that patient to get the most value to receive the best care? And this is where I get really excited. You know, today, healthcare is primarily a direct business-to-business -business market. And because of that, there's business-to-business -business agreements that dictate the use of healthcare data. What I'm really excited in line with that kind of emergence of the direct-to-consumer market emerging is to really give more voice to patients to say, here's where I want my data to be used. And an example of where we're really seeing that today that's super exciting is the emergence of whole new models as it comes to clinical studies, how to enroll, how to match research studies and the patients suited to be enrolled in them. And what we find out is that when patients are able to educate themselves to learn and then to opt in, they're much more willing to do that <laughs> than probably many people would expect. So overall, I just think that there's a whole bunch of momentum in, in really elevating the patient's voice and I think as technologists, that's really, I think, where we're headed. That's where the puck's going. So that's how we think about our work at Redox as well. That's a theme that's come up multiple times on the RaiseLine podcast. I mean, we had Eric Topol on the podcast a couple of weeks back. And, you know, he obviously wrote the book. One of his many books was uh, The Patient Will See You Now about bringing that power to the patient so they can be, as Vivian Lee, another guest on our podcast said, co-producers of their own health, which they really should be. So it's good to hear that you all are providing that, making that a little more seamless as well for the patient. Can I just put one point on this one? Absolutely. The one point I would add here, and I'm, I'm so so happy you brought up Dr. Topol. So why now versus when Dr. Topol wrote his book? This is the perpetual question in healthcare, right? Is what enables change over time. The reason we are so excited is because our relationship to our healthcare data has fundamentally shifted because of COVID. We think about our healthcare data, think about whether we've been tested, what is the outcome of that test. Our relationship as Americans to our healthcare data has shifted and has become much more present than it ever has been before. And that's not going to go away anytime soon. 
in my mind, that is the main reason why I'm so hopeful that the voice of the patient is going to be elevated because patients are going to demand it in a way that they haven't before. Yeah, I, I think that's a really nuanced and important point. Something we believe a lot at Osmosis too, because we've seen a fundamental shift, not only in the way society views training healthcare professionals, now that we know we've reached shortages that are very acutely felt in across the country, especially in you know, Southern California, for example, but also understanding your own health, right? Like it's one thing to raise line and improve healthcare capacity and strengthen the healthcare system. It's another thing to convince people to wear masks and socially distance and actually get the vaccine so they can flatten the curve so we don't need as much healthcare. So I think it's a really important point. You know, our audience are primarily healthcare professionals who have a love-hate relationship with electronic health records. And clearly the you know things you're doing are helping to make that more of a love relationship because it's easier to transfer data and get what you need. What are your hopes for the EHR market and industry so that they aren't leading or contributing to so much burnout among our healthcare providers? The first thing I will say is the role of electronic health records and the government's choice to incentivize their adoption, I think was the right decision. And that might not be a popular opinion. But as a patient, as somebody who who is receiving care, thinking that as recent as 2009, there's a good chance that my care was documented on paper and therefore not at all available to a second doctor or a second nurse or a second PA is crazy. So the role of the EHR, which the way I've always thought about it, is the system of record for any healthcare institution is critical. And the federal government's decision to incentivize their adoption, I I think, is an interesting and impactful decision that at the end of the day, while very painful, I think is pushing the country and healthcare in the right direction. The second thing I will say that having worked with large healthcare organizations, change at the scale and pace necessary to adopt electronic health records is crazy. (laughs) Having lived through it, being in my 20s and stepping in to work with clinicians who've been doing their jobs for 30 plus years and basically asking them or being a part of the ASTA to change some of the fundamental ways they go about their work, that is going to be painful no matter what way you cut it. And all I can say is that I'm empathetic. I understand. I <laughs> I was in front of the room as people were dealing with that amount of change and definitely felt myself trying to voice and, and empathize with both sides of it. But I do think it's the right thing and the necessary thing. In terms of the relationship between clinicians and technology, The thing that's really clear is that over time, as people get used to and adopt and reestablish routines, there is definitely a higher level of productivity. There's definitely the ability to share meaningful information about a patient with a core clinical team is absolutely necessary. If you were to ask people after a couple of years of having adopted an electronic health record, you know, would I go back? Like, should we remove it? The vast majority of them will say, heck no that there's no way we could go back. So the only way is to keep going forward and to continue to iterate and improve. And in a lot of places, you know, it might take a couple of years, but you end up in a much better spot. That might not be true for everybody. I'm not saying that's true for 100%, but that's true for most people. My last question is, you know, 
what advice would you give people right now considering careers in healthcare, digital health like yourself, you were pre-med who then wound up you know, improving and innovating in healthcare in a different way than you had originally thought. So what advice would you give to the younger students in our, in our audience? Totally. And, and honestly, the fact that this is your core audience is one of the reasons I was so excited to chat with you directly. At the core, I see the folks in medical school and recently out of medical school as the most necessary change agents for healthcare. And, you know, when we look at the things that slow down technology adoption in healthcare, a huge part of it, there's obviously technical hurdles, but a huge part of it is cultural. So the kind of three roles that I think folks can specifically look at is first, be a, a user who's going to provide meaningful feedback to any of the technology you use, whether it's your EHR vendor or telemedicine vendor or anything else you use to, to do your work. The second is to be vocal where you see the need, where you see a gap, you know, where there's an opportunity for a tool that, you know, you struggle with today. You are all in a unique position to understand that gap and to understand how technology could support it. And then the last thing I would say is there's a clear trend of folks with clinical backgrounds being wonderful founders and co-founders for digital health and healthcare IT companies. For me, and I think for a lot of folks, the reason we work in healthcare isn't because it's easy, because it's certainly not. <laughs> we do it because it's impactful and we can we can bring about positive change. and. That's no different. You're in a position where you can be the founder of some really amazing technology startups if you wanted to do that too. That's some awesome advice. So Luke, with that, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. And, and more importantly, for the work that you do at Redox to, to raise the line and improve healthcare the way it functions and, and capacity as a whole. Awesome. It was great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. And with that, I'm Shiv Wiglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise line. We're all in this together. Take care. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.